0: Some presidents would have done anything for numbers like these. The lead starts right now. A better than expected June jobs report, but why the good news presents a problem for inflation. Then a shocking assassination. The former prime minister of Japan is murdered in the middle of a speech. The suspect using what appears to be a handmade gun in a country with very little gun violence. Then fires, flooding and drought America's national parks are disappearing faster than ever before. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Caitlin Collins. In for Jake Tapper. We start today with the money lead. Wall Street closing this hour mostly flat after today's jobs report exceeded expectations. That's great news, obviously, but it's not slowing rising prices and fears of a recession. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics... The United States added 372,000 jobs in June, and on average, American paychecks are up 5.1% in the last year. But that's not keeping up with inflation, which jumped 8.6% annually in last month's report. As MJ Lee reports, that's a problem for President Biden as he is struggling to convince Americans his economic agenda is working. Good
1: morning, My economic plan is moving this country in a better direction.
2: More signs on Friday of a robust U.S. labor market. The economy adding 372,000 jobs in June, far beating economists' expectations. And the unemployment rate remaining at 3.6 percent near historic lows. President Biden celebrating the news, saying the U.S. has now recovered all of the jobs lost during the pandemic.
1: At a time when our critics said the economy was too weak or having already added more jobs in my, we had already added more jobs my first year as president of any president in history, we still added more jobs in the past three months than any administration in nearly 40 years.
2: But despite the continued strength in the labor market, soaring inflation remaining a stubborn problem for the Biden White House.
1: Now look, I know times are tough. Prices are too high. Families are facing the cost of the living crunch.
2: While wages continue to move up last month, they were outpaced by decades high inflation. Consumer goods across the board squeezing American families and high gas prices adding to the widespread economic pessimism.
1: It's getting crazy. My car used to be $40 to fill up. Now it's $69.45. I'm over it.
2: Economists and experts warning that the U.S. is headed towards a recession if it isn't already in one. Top administration officials carefully treading around those suggestions.
1: I don't want to say we're going to be in a recession because we're doing everything we can to get our economy and bring inflationary costs down.
2: Many people were asking, are we in recession? What this suggests is, at least on the employment side and the labor market, we still have a very healthy economy. The Federal Reserve has been quickly raising interest rates to try to cool the economy. The central bank widely expected to announce another major rate hike later this month. The president understands that in order to bring down inflation, the Fed's gonna, you know, needs to cool the economy to some extent. Now, on a day like today, you really see what a uniquely challenging moment this is for President Biden and his White House. Uh, We have a very strong labor market with strong job gains. The unemployment rate remains low. Wages are going up. But high inflation is preventing a lot of people from just feeling good every single day. So, of course, the White House is hoping that some of this economic pessimism is going to dissipate in the coming months and particularly ahead of the November midterm,
0: midterm elections, Caitlin. Yeah, absolutely. It's a huge concern for them. MJ Lee, thank you. I want to bring in Brian Deese, the director of the White House's National Economic Council. Brian, thank you for being with us. In the White House's view, based on what you've seen today, has the jobs market slowed enough to help moderate inflation? And if not, how much more do you think it needs to slow down to do so?
3: Well, I think it's useful to step back and recognize that we have now hit a major milestone in this country. We've now recovered all of the private sector jobs that were lost during the pandemic and then some. So we now have more Americans working than at any time in our history, any time before the pandemic. Uh, And we also saw that the economy created about a million jobs over the last three months. Now, that is about 375,000 jobs a month. That's down from about 600,000 jobs a month that we uh, saw earlier. And uh, as the president said today, we expect that to continue to normalize and stabilize and you wouldn't see as strong job growth going forward. The goal here, though, is to get ourselves to a steady and stable growth through this transition while bringing prices down. And we recognize prices are too high. We're also making some progress on that front. Gas prices down about 25 cents over the course of the last 25 days. Uh, We have more that we need to do there, more progress to go. But it is important to step back and recognize this milestone on the labor market. A fast job recovery not only helps tens of millions of of Americans with uh, with better jobs and higher wages, it helps families, it helps balance sheets, it helps avoid hunger and other economic pain. And that's a real accomplishment.
0: Yeah, I think it certainly is a milestone. I understand it. it's one the White House wants to tout, but I do wonder how much do you think it needs to moderate, to moderate, how much does it need to slow to help moderate inflation? Like, What does that number look like?
3: Well, look, we're, we're seeing this process unfold. We're seeing it unfold and we're in a transition that many people have identified as necessary. And those elements we should, we should track and we should recognize that that is what we want to see uh, in the economy. So, we were running at six or 700,000 jobs a month, we're down to 375. We, would, we expect to see that come down further because to job growth that's more typical, to a, a, an economy where the unemployment rate is 3.6 percent. That's a historically low uh, unemployment rate, and so we would expect some additional moderation. We expect other transitions as well that we're seeing in the economy. People are spending less money on goods and products for their homes. They're spending more money on travel and services as well. That affects some companies positively, some companies negatively. Those are transitions that we want to see occur as we get back to a more normalized uh, uh, normalized pace here. And as we also work through some of these global supply uh, challenges that are hitting countries around the world. Last point, though, is that the United States, because of the strength of this labor market recovery, is better positioned than almost any country to take on the challenge of high prices, to actually drive that transition in a way where we don't have to give up all of the economic gains that we've made.
0: Yeah. And I know that's an argument that President Biden is making on the world stage. I do wonder, Brian, with the addition of three hundred and seventy two thousand jobs in a month, you know, it doesn't look like a labor market that's on the edge of a recession. And so what is the White House's assessment of that right now, given it has been a pretty big concern for so many Americans?
3: Well, look, if you look in the last quarter, April, May and June, as we just talked about, a million jobs created during that period. And so there has been a lot of uh, questions raised about where we are economically. But as far as the labor market's concerned, we're seeing healthy and steady job growth. In fact, that quarter, uh, a million jobs in a quarter is stronger than any time uh, pre-pandemic in 40 years. So that's on the labor market side. On the household balance sheet side, consumer spending, we're seeing some cooling, but household balance sheets remain historically strong uh, and people are in a relatively strong position to deal with what are real challenges. None of this is to diminish the the uncertainty And the challenges that people are facing when they're going to the grocery store, they're going to the gas station. Uh, But if you look at where we are economically right now, we have continued sources of strength and resilience. The question going forward is, can we make the right policy choices? Can we put the right policies in place so that we can continue this transition and not have to give up those gains? You heard the president say today, we're going to navigate through this transition. He's going to focus on helping working people during this transition.
0: So Brian, does it make you less worried about a recession potentially?
3: Look, uh, we, you know, there's always uncertainty. We're always going to uh, try to assess it. Uh, and that's uh, it, with every data point we do that. I think that if you look at a quarter in which we created a million jobs, it should be a pretty resounding statement of the strength of the labor market. And the labor market is at the core of our economy because everybody uh, is, operates fundamentally from whether they have a job, whether they can uh, earn a paycheck, and whether they have an opportunity to move up in their jobs. So a healthy labor market is at the core of a healthy economy. And I think we have real, healthier, ongoing strength in our labor market.
0: Brian, I guess one thing today, people look at this number, this jobs report, and they see these really good numbers. And wages are up, but inflation is still at this 40-year high. I mean, the prices of gas, groceries, other goods are all up. And so for Americans who see these numbers today, but they don't feel like they feel these numbers, what do you say to Americans who just say they simply can't afford those price increases?
3: absolutely we have tough and uncertain times and people are feeling it and what i would say is you've got a president who has made very clear his priority which is to do everything that he can to work to bring those prices down but importantly to do so in a way that doesn't give up all of the economic gains that are making a difference in people's lives that uh, that are making a difference in terms of the job opportunities and the uh, and the opportunities that people have to have a little more economic dignity in their lives so that's why you see this president focused on doing everything that he can while the Fed uses the tools that it has to help ease the costs that families are facing. As I mentioned, we're seeing some moderation on gas prices. That's a good thing. We need to see more. We're seeing some moderation, for example, on shipping rates that companies pay and have to pass on to consumers. You know, that's in part because the president worked to get a bipartisan uh, shipping bill done and signed uh, signed into law about a month ago. There's more work that we have to do. But in all of these places, you're going to see a president that's going to use the tools that he has to try to bring down prices. But again, not in a way that just destroys or gives up uh, all of the economic gains that we've made.
0: And we get a key update on inflation next week. We'll be looking closely at that. I know you will be, too. Brian Deese, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Thank you. Coming up, the former prime minister of Japan has been assassinated. What we're learning about the suspect. Then, the Uvalde mayor refutes a new report that claims the police officers missed an opportunity to shoot the gunman before he entered the school. In our world lead, the assassination of former Japanese prime minister Shinzo Abe has sent shockwaves across the globe. Today, American leaders are remembering his kindness and fierce dedication to the U.S.-Japanese alliance. He was the first Japanese leader to ever address a joint session of Congress. And when he was there, he quoted a song by Carol King that he said he listened to in high school to highlight the alliance.
4: When you are down and troubled, close your eyes and think of me and I'll be there to brighten up Even your darkest
0: night. CNN's Blake Essig reports from an astonished Japan, where gun violence is almost non-existent.
5: Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was speaking at a campaign rally east of Osaka on Thursday when chaos ensued. Two shots can be heard. Abe is hit in the chest and neck. The weapon, a handmade gun, lying on the ground. Bystanders tried to aid the former prime minister before he was rushed to the nearest hospital. But soon news broke. He had succumbed to his injuries and died aged 67.
6: There were two bullet wounds. He was in a cardiopulmonary arrest after damage to large blood vessels in the heart. We took resuscitative measures, but unfortunately he died at 5.03 p.m.
5: Police have arrested the suspect, a 41-year-old man who did not flee after the shooting. A rare occurrence in Japan, a country with one of the world's lowest gun
6: rates.
5: He loved this country and constantly looked beyond the current generation, working hard for a brighter future of this country, leaving behind many major successes in various categories. World leaders also condemned the assassination. U.S. President Joe Biden stunned and outraged by Abe's death, calling him a champion of the friendship between our people.
1: This hasn't happened to Japan in decades and decades. I'm told all the way back to the late 30s. The Justice Department is going to be going in and giving me more detail. Former
5: U.S. Presidents Barack Obama and Donald Trump also grieving the death of a personal and quote, friend of America. From China, reaction came from the country's embassy in Japan, highlighting Abe's contribution to promoting the improvement and development of Sino-Japanese relations. Shinzo Abe's relations with Beijing were sometimes contentious. He was the first Japanese PM to meet with a Chinese counterpart in years, but was also critical of Beijing's stance on Taiwan. His premiership marked Japan's history in bilateral relations. However, his assassination, now a black dot in the country's history. A violent act of crime that is due to send ripples of shock across Japan. Now, overnight we've learned more Overnight, we learned more about the suspect's uh, motive in the assassination of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Police say that the suspect, a 41-year-old unemployed man, has admitted to the shooting. Uh, They say that he went after Abe because he hates a certain group that he believed Abe had ties to. That man has now been, uh, is now being investigated as a suspect for murder with 90 police investigators dedicated to this case. Caitlin. It's
0: just such stunning news. Blake Essig in Tokyo. Thank you for the report. Turning to our national lead, Uvalde's mayor is disputing a damning new report about the police response to the deadly massacre at Robb Elementary. That report claimed that an officer failed to shoot the gunman while he was sighted in his rifle because he never received permission before the suspect entered the building. Mayor Don McLaughlin is pushing back, saying that none of the officers had an opportunity to take a shot at the gunman and that the, quote, premature release of piecemeal information does a disservice to the victims and their families despite that criticism the group behind the report says they stand by what they found and that those details came directly from officer statements that were provided to investigators when postal workers deliver more than the mail in a war zone they are a lifeline for the few ukrainians who cannot leave their homes More than 40 towns and villages in the Donbass, which is the industrial region in the eastern part of Ukraine, have come under Russian attack over the last 24 hours. That's according to Ukraine's military, which says Russian forces are now pushing their advance further west towards the Luhansk-Donetsk border. And CNN's Alex Marquardt is on the ground in Kharkiv as Ukrainian forces are also preparing to push back.
6: In downtown Kharkiv, this team of postal workers is gearing up for a trip to the front lines, a village that, until recently, was occupied by Russians. Their mission is critical. They have cars full of cash to deliver to Ukrainian pensioners who rely on the meager funds to survive. They drive past fields littered with mines to Vilkivka, where the older residents have already gathered in the small post office pockmarked by shrapnel. Only the most vulnerable people stayed here, says the head of today's operation. During the Russian offensive, it was impossible to evacuate these people. We come here because no one else will help them. Bills are counted out, and one by one they collect around $100 at the counter, their pension for an entire month. 78-year-old Stepanya Leskiev has come from nearby. We walk back with her, past a school that was destroyed, Stepania's home also lies in ruin, hit in late March. She bursts into tears at the sight of it and says the shelling happened right in front of her. (laughs) The house started burning, I fell down, and I managed to crawl out to the road, she said. In 20, 30 minutes, everything was burned down. She's staying with a neighbor, but worries what will happen when winter comes. She's a widow whose son died from the Chernobyl disaster. I wish it was over for me, she says. When the bombing starts, I don't know where to hide. Russian forces occupying much of this region have been pushed back by Ukrainian troops. Fear is growing. They will try to come back soon. These Ukrainian soldiers claim they're ready. They might be stronger than us in numbers and in weapons, you know that, this soldier says, but we are much more motivated. We will be fighting until our last bullet, so they don't take our land. These Ukrainian forces have positioned this rocket launcher here among the trees to try to hide it on the edge of this field. This is called an Uragan. It's an old Soviet era Ukrainian rocket launcher. It is much more basic with far less range than the handful of American rocket launchers that have just been given to the Ukrainian military. But this is what these troops have. And they tell us that their commanders today have given them the coordinates of a Russian position inside Ukraine to fire on. And in a couple of moments, they will drive this truck with its rockets a short distance away and target that Russian position. The launcher rumbles into the middle of the field and fires four rockets in quick succession. Black smoke trailing into the sky. We move out in case there's a response, but the soldier's day is just getting started. And, Caitlin, what those Ukrainian soldiers on the front lines told us is that they need more and more sophisticated weapons from the West to stop the Russians. The Pentagon now saying today that more is on its way in the form of a $400 million security assistance package, which will include four more of those advanced, highly precise rocket launching systems called HIMARS, bringing the number that the U.S. has given to Ukraine to 12. Now, Caitlin, Russia claims that they have destroyed two of them, but Ukraine and the U.S. flatly deny that. Caitlin.
0: And President Biden has said he will support Ukraine indefinitely. Alex Marquardt in Ukraine, thank you and stay safe. Coming up, Donald Trump's White House counsel is on Capitol Hill and talking to the January 6th committee behind closed doors. What we've learned about the hours long interview is up next. In our politics lead, today, President Biden signed an executive order aimed at protecting reproductive rights after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. But the order is vague, and it leaves most of the details up to the Health and Human Services Secretary, who has said there's no, quote, magic bullet to restore the right. The White House says today's move will expand access to emergency contraception and devices like IUDs, launch new public education efforts on patient rights, provide more legal representation for those who are legally seeking abortions and the doctors who are providing them, and focus on protecting patient privacy when people are looking online for information about abortions. But the order stops far short of meeting the demands of abortions rights activists, and Biden is placing much of the responsibility to act on Congress. Legal challenges over abortion are still unfolding across the country And CNN's Jeff Zeleny met with people on both sides of the issue in Virginia, a closely divided swing state that will still pretty much trying to figure out what comes next.
4: So help me God. As Glenn Youngkin took office this year as the country's newest Republican governor, his Virginia victory was hailed by the GOP as a roadmap for the party's success. First, I am pro-life. He opposed abortion rights, but rarely emphasized it, focusing instead on economic and education issues. When the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, most Republican governors across the country moved swiftly to ban or severely restrict abortions. But in Virginia, Yunkin is taking a slower, more measured approach. I'm a pro-life governor, and I will sign a bill that comes to my desk that protects life. And I look forward to that. The governor supports a law seeking to ban abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy, with exceptions for rape, incest, and life of the mother as he tries to balance the demands from strict opponents of abortion rights with the political reality of Democrats controlling the state Senate by one vote.
7: All eyes will be on Virginia. Um, I think we're the epicenter for the initial decisions that will be made on a lot of the pro-life legislation.
4: Senator Amanda Chase, who challenged Yunkin in the Republican primary last year, said she would prefer a bill that goes even further. But she knows that is unlikely to find success so she supports the governor's plan. So even the 15-week bill, you think it has an uphill?
7: I think it has an uphill battle, honestly, in, in, in the Virginia Senate because of the makeup of the, of the Virginia Senate. 19 to 21, 19 Republicans, 21 Democrats. Our
4: As legal challenges unfold in states across the nation, the political debate in Virginia is taking shape with the nuance of a closely divided battleground.
2: Well, certainly it's taken us decades to get where we are in this moment, to get past the decision of Roe. And so to think that tomorrow we could ban all abortion would be unrealistic, but I understand the sentiment.
4: Victoria Cobb is president of the Family Foundation of Virginia, an influential lobbying group that opposes abortion. She's calling for a patient pragmatism.
2: When you're talking about human lives, you do what you can when you can, rather than um, put out what you believe and what you want to have happen, you put out what you can actually accomplish.
4: Youngkin insists common ground can be found. I believe that this is a moment where the Commonwealth of Virginia can come together. That's not how Democratic Senate leader Louise Lucas sees it. The bill is dead on arrival. Any abortion bill must pass through the Education and Health Committee, of which she is the chair, and decides what is or is not considered by the full Senate.
8: I will not agree to anything less than what what is codified in code in Virginia right now, and that is for 20 weeks. And so if the governor is trying to push a 15-week ban, it's not going to get through my committee. I can guarantee you that one.
4: You can block this in your committee. You have the power as the chair. I do. Senator Lucas tells me she will do everything in her power to make sure Virginia remains, in her words, a safe haven for women seeking access to abortion. Now, Governor Youngkin and Republicans are pushing for a ban after 15 weeks as a starting point with calls by some to go much further. It is clear that Virginia will be a closely watched test case for all of the fallout from that Supreme Court ruling as the country is divided into a state by state patchwork of abortion laws. Caitlin.
0: CNN's Jeff Zeleny. Thank you. I want to bring in my panel now to discuss this. And Abby, you just saw that report from Jeff where you see this division over what's going to happen. You saw the smile on her face as she was saying that she would have the power to block that abortion ban at fewer weeks. Is this something that you think we're we're just going to be dealing with until the midterm elections
8: or just for the foreseeable future, really? And even beyond. And I mean, look, she had a smile on her face, but there are not actually that many places in the country where... um, Democrats, if they are faced with a restrictive abortion ban, have the ability to stop it. Uh, they don't have a lot of state legislatures uh, where they have unified control. And uh, even in the places where they do maybe have the governorship, they have a veto. Some of those legislatures, they have a, a veto-proof majority to pass restrictive bills. So it's it's actually a pretty dire picture out there uh, for, for Democrats at the state level. And uh, this issue is going to go on even further beyond the midterms because this is— <laughs> Democrats got into this hole in state legislatures over the period of 10 to 15 years. It's not going to get resolved in two to four years. And I think uh, they're going to have to come to terms with what that means for themselves and how to and how to reverse the slide. That's been going on for a long time.
0: And so much of this, Maria, is going back to the White House and so much pressure that President Biden is under to do more. That's why you saw them come out with this executive order today. But it's pretty vague. It's not really clear. Part of the directive is. Sending the HHS secretary off for 30 days to then come back. And so is this something that for abortion rights activists that they've been pushing for, is this at all going to meet their, their demands? Well, I think what they have said,
7: and I've talked to some of them today, they think it's a step in the right direction. But politically, I actually think what it allows Democrats to do is to continue to keep the focus on this issue front and center. You talked about how it's a, a dire uh, picture for Democrats. It's actually a dire picture for American women. And that's exactly what Democrats are going to be campaigning on. And sure, there is sort of some vagueness in terms of what the White House announced today. But the White House and President Biden can point to everything that they can do at this point. And then what else is there? It is up to the voters. It is up to the activists to push this issue front and center because if we think we live in two Americas before Roe v. Wade, this is really the definition of two Americas. We're going to have states where they're going to be prosecuting women and doctors. And then you're going to have states that are going to be safe havens. I talked to a lawyer today about the, um, the, the executive order, and he said, look, this is a it's sort of laying the groundwork for what is going to become a state by state literal battle for women who are trying to look for this kind of reproductive care. And I think that is absolutely an incredibly
0: important and, and powerful issue for Democrats to run on. And some of them may say it's a step in the right direction. But there are other things the White House could do, Jackie, like putting abortion clinics on federal lands, steps that they have not gone that far yet and said you know there are options, but they're not taking right. that step yet. But really today, President Biden seemed to be putting much, much of the responsibility on Congress.
1: We need two additional pro-choice senators and a pro-choice House to codify Roe as federal law. Your vote can make that a reality. I know it's frustrating and it made a lot of people very angry. But the truth is this, and it's not just me saying it, it's what the court said.
0: So, Jackie, the president is predicting record turnout from women voters this fall. Do you think that that's realistic?
9: It's hard to say. I know that Democrats are counting on that. And that's what you're hearing to to change uh, the tide on many things, on voting rights, on all sorts of things that you're hearing Democrats saying you got to go vote or this isn't going to change. It, this is kind of we, we haven't had uh, abortion actually you know, outlawed in certain states before. So we'll have to see in the past. You haven't seen Democrats vote on this issue. It was much more things like the economy and a range of other things um, where uh, you had conservative voters, to Abby's point, particularly in, in the legislature, um, would vote on this issue and on you know, justices and whatnot. So they've got a lot of work to do, honestly, um, the, the Democratic Party, in order to make sure that their, their people get out.
3: I mean, look at the polling on think? this nationally, though. I mean, the list of issues that people care about 70, 80 percent of Americans are focused on some kind of an economic issue inflation, job situation, cost of groceries, cost of gas. The issues you just mentioned that they have trouble rallying people around abortion, climate, you know, voting rights these are all low single digit issues. So the White House here is putting a ton of attention on an issue that is just not that important in the grand macro metric. But, but I do of, wonder,
9: of, of I do ish, wonder, the, I do of wonder, of if it did now. But, but we don't know that because we, this is the first time it's been overturned and because this issue is so front and center, I think it will be something worth watching yes. to see how Democratic voters and Republican it's all, it's voters also, react.
3: It's also not the only, there are, the Democrat voters are not the only players on the field. Remember, Democrats ran on abortion in the Virginia governor's race last year. And in the post-election exit polling, people who ranked it as their top issue preferred Yunkin. Over McCallum. So there are a lot of Republican voters out there who are more than happy to have this decision come down. But this is not a monolithic but, issue. But
7: the vote, we all know that voters who come out to the polls and are energized the most are voters who are pissed off. Women are pissed off. And that is something that Democrats are going to continue to energize. And I'm sorry, Scott, this is not a low attention issue. I'm just, reading the, I'm just reading the polling. I'm just reading the polling. Let's <laughs> talk about the polling. There have been several polls coming out after Roe v. Wade that actually have flipped the generic ballot. For Democrats, that shows me that there is absolutely momentum there. Do we have to continue to keep this front center? Absolutely. The announcements from the White House, I think, help us do that. What what uh, Republican governors are trying to do to outlaw abortion or make it more restrictive, absolutely, is golden for Democrats to continue to talk about this. When you have a woman, and yes, the economy is going to be huge, right? Inflation is going to be huge. When you're at the gas pump, is huge. But I'm sorry, if you have a woman who's in there pumping her gas and she's looking at the price of gas and rolls in a man and she starts thinking, I have freaking less rights than this guy that's pumping gas next to me. That is important. You might be rolling your eyes, Scott, but you're a dude. (laughs) And so I'm sorry, but this is a huge issue for women and their families. To the
8: extent that Democrats coming into this cycle had an enthusiasm problem, it's really Mm -hmm. important for them to at least match Republicans on Mm -hmm. the enthusiasm question. And and I think that perhaps this issue plus guns could help them get there. Absolutely. But, but there's also a lot of people in the messy middle uh, for whom this is important, but they're weighing it along with other things. And I think that's where we don't know how it's going to play out at the end of the day.
0: We don't know. And of course, that we up to the voters to make this decision. And we'll see sure. what they say when they go to the polls. I do want to switch, though, because we have another major story that's happening here in Washington today when it comes to lawmakers on Capitol Hill, and that's Pat Cipollone, the former White House counsel, up on Capitol Hill, testifying behind closed doors to the January 6th committee. And so, Jackie, I wonder, you know, he did not want to testify. He was subpoenaed. They came to this agreement to go behind closed doors. It is being videotaped. But how do you think former President Trump is taking this today?
9: I mean, I can't imagine he's happy about it. I'm sure uh, he I mean, he clearly didn't want any of anyone around him to testify. But I really think you've got to go back to that Cassidy Hutchinson Mm -hmm. testimony. Um, Last week, I mean, that she talked about Cipollone so many times, completely and that really changed the game and her conversations with Cipollone are not going to be something that's privileged. Um, And I imagine that they've asked about several of the things that she testified to and others. Jared Kushner talked about how Cipollone was trying to quit all the time. Yeah. What about that? So, there, there's a lot that they can glean from him. And
0: he referred to Cipollone as whining, I right. think, I yeah. one time. mean, <laughs> we covered the White House together, though. And you know, Cipollone is someone who was at the center of so many of these issues, but he is also an institutionalist. And he really values the position of the White House counsel. That's why we were told he, in part, resisted testifying. Do you think he's behind closed doors using a lot of executive privilege for not answering? Because he's been going out and consulting with his attorneys in the hallway.
8: I think, fight for- that, I think that he came in having given the committee a pretty clear sense of what he could and could not talk about. But at the same time, uh, there are, to Jackie's point, a lot of very specific recollections. Mm-hmm. I-, I am struck by the specificity. The words that came out of uh, Pat Cipollone's mouth were recited, allegedly, by Cassidy Hutchinson. Mm-hmm. And he cannot claim executive privilege on exactly. those things. Those things were not said to Trump. They were not said in meetings with Trump. They were said in the hallway, in Mark Meadows' office. He cannot claim executive privilege on those things. And so there's that set of things. But I think he also has some self-preservation at hand here. This is not someone who wants to be in a never-Trump camp. And I think that that weighs very heavily on what he's willing to testify to. And
0: I think a big question, since Republicans have tried to dispute what Cassidy Hutchinson said, is does he back up a lot of the the quotes and the scenarios that she testified to? Thank you all for being here on a Friday afternoon. I do appreciate it. Of course, on Sunday, be sure to tune in for CNN for Inside Politics Sunday with Abby Phillip. That's at 8 a.m. Eastern. So make sure you get up and pour a cup of coffee and watch Abby. Still ahead, it is the land Harriet Tubman traveled across to free hundreds of slaves. But right now, it's disappearing. The growing threat to so many American national parks. In our Earth Matters series, 500 of the Earth's biggest trees are in danger of burning to a crisp as a wildfire rapidly encroaches on Mariposa Grove in California's Yosemite National Park. CNN's Renee Marsh reports from a national park on the East Coast that's vanishing due to the climate disaster caused by humans.
10: The land is disappearing before our eyes. Maryland's eastern shores in the crosshairs of climate change-induced sea level rise. And so is the rich history preserved at the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad National Historical Park. We're wearing these... because (laughs) there is so much water here and it's standing water. So the mosquitoes are really bad. Mosquitoes are bad. So this is almost like a requirement during the summer. If Harriet Tubman were living right now, she would recognize this landscape, but she would be shocked at how quickly it's disappearing. As water from the Chesapeake Bay encroaches, University of Maryland scientists project large portions of the national park will be underwater by the year 2050 if planet warming emissions are not drastically curbed. Rising tides threaten sites like this cemetery for free black people in Tubman's
1: community. Over time, these very low-lying areas that were part of the important trails that allowed people to escape, at that time will be lost in some places.
10: More than 70% of national parks in the continental U.S. are at high risk from the effects of climate change. From sea level rise and flooding to extreme temperatures, drought and wildfires. Historic flooding at Yellowstone National Park last month forced it to shut down for more than a week. At California's Sequoia National Park, home of the world's largest trees, wildfires have burned large swaths of the giant sequoia groves. Wildfires and extreme heat have forced California's Yosemite National Park to close several times in recent years. Meanwhile, Glacier National Park in Montana is rapidly losing its namesake feature. This is Grinnell Glacier in 1910
8: versus 2021. These are places that tell critical stories of our history and people and culture and these places are not going to be able to withstand
10: these repeat assaults more frequent more intense natural disasters will drastically transform national park landscapes and there's the economic loss in 2021 alone our national parks saw over 297 million visitors They generated over $42.5 billion. Back on Maryland's eastern shore, the National Park Service says it has teamed up with the Army Corps of Engineers and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association to fight the growing impacts of climate change. And it is high tide here in Washington, D.C., and you can see water is flowing over the banks here at the Jefferson Memorial, in part because uh, water levels have risen a foot since this memorial was built 75 years ago. And this issue of climate and national parks is on the radar for some members of Congress. Just this week, uh, members visited Yosemite National Park to see firsthand the effects of climate change on these national parks, and the idea is to bring back that information uh, so that they can better determine how to spend federal dollars to make
0: these parks more resilient, Caitlin. It's awful to see such landmarks under threat. Renee Marsh has a very important report. Thank you so much for bringing it to us. Sure. Coming up, we have a look at the place where killer whales are intentionally beaching themselves for survival. CNN is traveling to one of the wildest places on Earth for a new CNN original series.
4: The family has perfected an ingenious way to hunt here. First, they swim sideways to hide their telltale dorsal fins. The seals have no idea that these six-ton killers are so close. Then the orca do something extraordinary. They beach themselves.
0: You can see the CNN original series, Patagonia, Life on the Edge of the World, this Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And on Sunday morning, you can join CNN's State of the Union. Jake Tapper is going to be talking to Illinois Governor Jamie Pritzker, New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, and January 6th committee member Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren. It's at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern on Sunday. I'm Caitlin Collins in for Jake Tapper on this Friday afternoon. Thank you so much for joining me. Our coverage continues right now with my friend Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room.